This is Abby from Massachusetts, and you are listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy, reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience you're wanting to. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, Head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com slash dream to sign up, and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers, or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no more excuses. So, let's get started. I would like to take the time to thank everyone for continuing to support California Dreaming on social media by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as for those who have left reviews for the show on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to the show on, by spreading the word by recommending California Dreaming in listening groups, and of course, for supporting us on Patreon as well. There are currently about 25 exclusive bonuses on Patreon, And for as little as a dollar a month, you can gain access to almost all of them. This week, I'd like to thank Carrie B., California Penal Code 187, the podcast, Judith S., and Dean S. Thank you so much for your support. And if you would like to make a one-time donation to help the show with its production costs, you can do so through PayPal by using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Thank you again so much. Dreamers, this week our story again takes place in Orange County. But I guess you could say this one's on the other side of the proverbial tracks from our last one where the backdrop was swanky Newport Beach. There is another side of Orange County That is a little bit more working class than the community where Peter and QC Chadwick from episode 103 had once resided. No, this week our story takes us further north to the city of Santa Ana, which boasts a large immigrant population. Lots of people who came to the United States for better opportunities and can easily be swallowed up by the magic of nearby Disneyland. We are going to talk about one of those people who came here with her family for something a little more than what Mexico had to offer. And she worked hard and proudly served this country as a member of the United States Army. And she was on her way to achieving exactly what she had set out to do, to not only improve herself and her life, but also the lives of her family and loved ones. In today's 104th episode of California Dreaming, the tale of the men who loved Maribel. 
Maribel Ramos was born November 22, 1976, in Mexico, and she was raised in Santa Ana, California. She was very close with her younger sister, Lucy, her mother, and had many, many cousins, aunts, and uncles. The family was big, and it was tight-knit. Later on, she would also take on the role of devoted aunt to her sister Lucy's daughter, Giselle, who would describe her Aunt Maribel as being akin to a second mother. That's how close they were. Maribel was very involved in Giselle's life. She encouraged her to work hard in school. She coached her in softball, which Maribel loved to play. And her punishments typically included a set of push-ups. And you'll come to see why once you get to know more about Maribel, why she insisted on pushing her niece to strive to be the best and the strongest at everything she does. As I said, Maribel enjoyed playing softball. She loved it. The cousins and aunts and uncles would all get together on the weekends to play. But whatever it was, Maribel stood out as one of the most competitive, no matter what the game was. She had a drive to want to win. And from a very young age, Maribel's always wanted more from life than what they knew living in Santa Ana, as her mom often struggled working long hours to keep a roof over their heads. Maribel always understood that if she was going to achieve her dreams of a solid future, she was going to have to put in the work. Right after she graduated from high school in 1994, Maribel found a job working as a security guard at a local department store. But it was her dream to someday become a police officer. But that meant she needed to somehow put herself through college. And as many of you know, if you enlist in the United States military, you have the opportunity to have college paid for with what's known as the GI Bill. So that's what Maribel eventually decided she needed to do in order to get there. Talk about a long-term plan, right? The day Maribel became Army Private First Class Maribel Ramos was August 8, 2001. And you all know the event that took place 34 days after that date. 9-11. So Maribel's mother and sister knew immediately that the United States was going to war, that Maribel was going to war. They were nervous and concerned, of course, but not Maribel. She was ready, and she was fearless. She just told her sister Lucy, do what you gotta do to be there for mom, but she was getting deployed. Maribel went to Iraq twice for two tours and eventually earned the rank of sergeant. She worked logistics and transportation. Of course, her family was incredibly proud of her service to our country, as they should be, and Maribel was filled with a great deal of pride as well. Not only was she a role model for her family and her niece, but also for women and for Mexican-Americans. Serving her country meant so much to her, to protect and to ensure a better future. 
It was important for her to set this example of strength and determination for her family and her loved ones, especially Giselle. It was important to instill those ideals, not by just saying, but also by doing. While in the army, Maribel had taken part in more than 160 missions. That means 160 times she was in the direct line of danger. And that was a lot for any soldier. In taking so many chances, there is bound to be something that goes wrong. And Maribel did experience a devastating loss during one of her missions. She was a part of a convoy that was carrying some heavy weapons from one command post to another under cover of darkness. Their convoy came under attack, and as a result of that, a sergeant Maribel had worked very closely with was killed. She experienced a tremendous amount of guilt when her tour was over, and she was able to return home with her family, but her sergeant never would. Maribel would be honorably discharged from the Army in 2009, and she would settle back down in Santa Ana with her fiancé, Chris Carlin, who was also a member of the Army. According to Chris, when Maribel left the Army, she struggled with post-traumatic stress disorder and had a very difficult time adjusting back to civilian life. She had nightmares, Loud noises caused very intense reactions. Being around others was often overwhelming. And sometimes, Maribel would just break down into tears. She wasn't exactly the type to confide in her family or share her vulnerabilities. So, you know, there was only so much that they could do to help or understand exactly what it was that she was going through. But despite all that, Maribel was determined to continue to chase her dreams to become a police officer. But her fiancé, Chris, well, he didn't seem to think that she was mentally or emotionally equipped anymore to take on such an intense career. And according to Maribel's sister, she got the impression that Chris really tried to shut down her plans to become an officer. And actually, that possibly could have extended back to the time that Maribel was in the military, too. He simply didn't offer the kinds of support that Maribel needed from a significant other. And his mindset started to come between them. It became a bigger and bigger point of contention. And it finally reached a point that their relationship would not subsist the divide. They went their separate ways, and Maribel ended up moving home with her mom. And this breakup was devastating for Chris. Maribel, though, determined to keep pushing forward in the wake of her relationship with Chris falling apart, enrolled at Cal State University at Fullerton three months after they broke up in August of 2009. She majored in criminal justice. And of course, it goes without saying, she did really well. She was very enthusiastic about her classes, wanting to learn. She was really driven to achieve those goals she had set for herself. But you know, life is weird. And it sometimes throws obstacles in your way. 
especially when you're working hard at picking yourself up from the previous one. Just a month after Maribel began the fall semester at Fullerton, she received the devastating news that her mom was sick, very sick. She was diagnosed with colon cancer, and the prognosis was not good. So now Maribel, coming off a difficult breakup, having literally just started a rigorous program at school, and now she's tasked with providing care for her ailing mother, who pretty much required around-the-clock attention. However, sadly, Maribel's mother's condition quickly deteriorated. She was finally placed in hospice care and passed away only three months after she was given the grim diagnosis. The death of Mary Bell and Lucy's mother, Giselle's grandmother, was an unbearable loss for the close-knit family. So Mary Bell, up to this point, she was 32 years old. She had eight years in the Army under her belt. She had come home with struggles with PTSD. She went through a difficult breakup with her fiancé, and her mother passed away very suddenly. And she's taking on the added challenge of going to school to earn her four-year degree in criminal justice. That's a lot. But true to form, she just kept soldiering forward. So you get the picture. Maribel is an incredibly strong soul. While she was attending Fullerton, she decided to join the Student Veterans Association. And there she was able to share with other veterans some of the things that she had continued to suffer through in the aftermath of combat. All the things associated with PTSD. Difficulty sleeping, recurring dreams, sensitivity to loud sounds, difficulty being around people, and flashbacks. At the VA, they talked through all that stuff. The things that many veterans face when integrating back into civilian life working through it with your family and your loved ones who can often feel helpless to help you living with PTSD, dealing with suicidal ideations, bouts with depression, and figuring out how to work through it and hopefully past it. But being in this class led to an additional complication. Another student who was a member of the student VA took a liking to Mary Bell to a point where he would even be described as stalking her. And Mary Bell had made it clear that she was not interested in him. But the whole ordeal left Mary Bell feeling a certain level of anxiety about it. And that was the last thing she needed on top of everything else that she was dealing with in life, you know? We'll come back to this person giving her this trouble at the student VA a little bit later on in the story. Well, in the meantime, following Mary Bell's mother's death... She decided to rent an apartment, and she even adopted a small dog to keep her company since she was going to be living alone. And that's just about how the next three years went. Maribel focused on herself, school, her family, especially her niece. And all in all, things seemed to be going okay. But by March of 2012, Maribel decided it would be a good idea to find a roommate to live with. 
She had been living alone for a while by then. It could help with offsetting the cost of rent. So she went on Craigslist and placed an ad looking for someone to share a house. She described herself as a 35-year-old active female looking for a calm, mature male roommate. Marybelle's cousin kind of wondered why she specifically sought out a male. And he's not exactly wrong, you know. A lot of times women looking for roommates often specify that they would prefer a female. And that's understandable. Why she would specifically say she was looking for a male? Maybe she knew she could handle herself. She could take care of herself, yet at the same time, maybe she figured it wouldn't hurt to have a guy around. He might be handy or might bring a little sense of security around the house. Maybe she was used to being around men in the army. Maybe she felt like living with women was more drama. Whatever the case... That's what she was looking for. And it wasn't long after her ad went up that she got a few messages, but one of them she liked right away. It was from a man named Quang Chal Joy, KC for short. He was a 52-year-old Korean man who worked as a chemical engineer, and he was a transplant from Tennessee. So he sounded like he might be a pretty good fit for what she was looking for. She told him to give her a call, and they talked, and he took a look at the place, and they quickly came to terms. Marybell asked her sister to come over so she could meet Casey, and from the very beginning, it looked as though the arrangement was just right for all involved. And Lucy's initial impression was good, too. Casey seemed to be exactly what her sister was looking for in a roommate. He was soft-spoken, an older guy, Someone who would bring a level of calmness to the home that Marybell desperately needed while she was there. And he also had a little dog, and it didn't look as though he would be having all kinds of company over or overwhelm the house. So both Lucy and Marybell felt really, really good about Casey. And Casey and Marybell quickly became close friends. Casey didn't have any family in the area, and the more he got to know Maribel and all of her family, he kind of became a part of theirs, and they welcomed him with open arms. While they were at home, they watched TV shows and movies, but they also went out socially. They would go hiking, they'd hang out at the beach, they'd go to the movies, they had even gone on a cruise together. Casey also tutored Giselle with math, and was able to help her improve her grades because it helped working with somebody else who taught differently than her teachers did, and his techniques worked really well for her. So he really grew to become a part of the family. It was a great arrangement, and over the course of the next year, this is basically how things went. So, dreamers... What's the one thing you might be noticing is missing from Maribel's life? Yeah, something involving dating or having a boyfriend. You know, it had been some time since her breakup with Chris, and it looked as though Maribel was ready to start looking, but she was going to try online dating on a site called Plenty of Fish. It was an easy way for her to meet people since she was needing to study a lot, She was home all the time, 
that coupled with work and softball. She just didn't have a lot of time or a desire to try to go out and meet people, so going online was convenient. She first met a guy named Paul Lopez. He resided in Santa Ana. He was 34 years old and worked as a truck driver for the gas company. And Maribel really kind of liked him, and it seemed like things were going to get serious with him. They dated for about a month, and all of Maribel's friends and family had taken a liking to him, too. He even joined up with their softball team. By all accounts, he seemed good for Maribel. He was outgoing, he was friendly, he had a wonderful sense of humor, and Maribel was always laughing and smiling when she was with him. And they felt like he was a good, positive force for her at this point in her life when she had gone through so much heartache and tribulations. And they did seem to be a good fit. They seemed to have the same goals in life. Like it appeared as though it could have been a long-term thing. But that was just on the surface. It didn't take long before Maribel began to realize that Paul wasn't as serious as she was about being in a committed relationship. It seemed as though Maribel was looking for something a bit more solid. So in that respect, they weren't on the same page. So Maribel decided to give Plenty of Fish another go. And soon she met a 41-year-old photographer from Laguna Beach, California named Alan De Herrera. They talked online and then they talked on the phone and they seemed to have a pretty decent connection. She thought he was really unique and interesting. So they decided to set a date to meet in person. But while all of this was going on, Maribel's ex-fiance, Chris, well, he had not really fully been able to move on from the relationship that they had once had. He had been reaching out, trying to reconnect, wanting to try to work things out. According to Maribel's sister Lucy, she was aware that Chris had never really fully lost hope that maybe they could sort through their differences and that he had a strong desire to get back together. So it goes without saying, Maribel's love life, the online dating, the ex-fiance, the stalker that she had... There was a lot going on as she's headed towards finishing up her degree at Cal State Fullerton. So, by May of 2013, Maribel was on the cusp of graduating with her criminal justice degree. Her niece Giselle was also coming off a very successful school year herself, and her aunt had come by to reward her with a monetary gift for her good grades, that she had earned that academic year. When Giselle last saw her Aunt Maribel, her Tia, that day she noticed that she had come from the hair salon and thought how beautiful she looked as she was getting ready to walk at graduation. Giselle said Maribel was beaming, just so excited to have finally reached this point in her plan to become a police officer. So when just a few days passed, and suddenly nobody was able to get a hold of Maribel, fear and worry immediately set in. 
Maribel was so well connected with everyone, of course with her sister and her niece, but also her softball team, her roommate of 18 months, KC. I mean, she had gone someplace on May 2nd, and by Friday, May 3rd, when she had failed to come home, KC, while not completely worried at first, he began making phone calls and asking if anyone had seen Maribel because it was unusual for her to not come home for an entire night unless she had a planned trip. Then she would have let him know. Casey had apparently gotten up to make breakfast around 10.30 in the morning, and he went to try and see if she was awake. He discovered that she wasn't there. He tried texting Lucy, and he said something like, Hey, it's Casey. Your sister didn't come home. Her light was left on, and her bedroom door was open. Well, Lucy's initial reaction to this message was that this is really strange because she didn't think it was any of Casey's business where Maribel was or what he was doing or that she didn't come home. She was her own person. Lucy knew that she was actively dating. She was preparing to graduate. I mean, she was like, come on, just never mind what Maribel's doing. Just don't worry about it. You don't have to know where she is every single minute of every single day. But to just check in, Lucy decided to text Maribel to make sure everything was okay. Her text said, Happy Friday. Maribel did not respond. And that was out of character for her. But still, Lucy wasn't worried. This was her sister, her soldier, soon to be police officer. Lucy never worried about Maribel especially after she was home safe on American soil. But Casey, he wasn't deterred by Lucy's suggestion that he forget about it because he was genuinely worried. Ten minutes later or so after he texted Lucy, he decided to call police and he let Lucy know after he did it that he contacted law enforcement. I don't believe from the recording that I heard of this phone call that he made was to 911, but rather he called the City of Orange Police Department. In his call, he specified that this is not an emergency. I have a roommate, she's 36 years old, and she didn't come home last night. But come Friday evening, that was their dedicated softball night, and it was a thing that Maribel never missed. But that night, she never showed up. And this was like seriously one of her favorite things to do. And she never, ever just blew it off. If anything, if something came up or she couldn't make it, she would for sure call. But until that day, she never missed a game. And she hadn't contacted anyone. Maribel's cousin on the team tried calling her cell phone a couple times, but his call was being sent straight to voicemail. Maribel's teammates immediately began calling around, starting with KC, her roommate, to check and see if she was home. And then the flurry of calls began escalating. Everyone is making phone calls. The whole team, Maribel's family, everybody. And they began blowing up her sister's phone too. And then soon, a flood of calls came from the teammates and from Lucy to 911. And then they all began to descend upon Maribel's house. As it did not seem Casey's initial call to the non-emergency number prompted any action on the part of law enforcement, 
as he himself said it wasn't an emergency. And it wasn't treated as one because she was an adult and it hadn't even been a full day, at least to anyone's knowledge, that she had been gone. So when police arrived at the house the evening of Friday, May 3rd, they knocked on the door. Nobody was home. They peered inside the windows and it didn't seem like anybody was there and everything was locked, but it was clear that there was a light on in one of the bedrooms. Upon finally gaining entry by force, the apartment was dark for the most part, but as they made their way down the hallway towards Maribel's room and saw that her light was on and found that her door was open, and all of that seemed really strange since nobody was there. It did not appear that any type of struggle took place anywhere in the home. Nothing was knocked down, nothing was broken, no furniture was overturned. But in addition to Maribel being missing, also gone was her cell phone, her keys, and her identification cards. Her sister, Lucy, in somewhat of a daze, she too made her way over to Maribel's apartment driving over there filled with anxiety and fear as to what, if anything, she would come to find when she arrived. Thoughts continued swirling through her mind, trying to make sense of what was actually happening. I've never been through an experience like this, but we've all had those moments where we are dealing with something, something that is so unimaginable that we can't seem to wrap our minds around what is really going on, Like we begin to ask ourselves, is this some sort of weird dream? And when am I going to wake up from this? Imagine trying to drive in that confused and jumbled state of mind. None of this was adding up for Lucy. She and her sister, they communicated every day. And the fact that Maribel hadn't responded to any of her texts and calls, which were going straight to voicemail, she's freaking out. She thought when she walked into Maribel's apartment that she was going to find her in her room dead. So she's thinking the worst. But when she got there, there was nothing. Maribel wasn't there at all. She found her room to be in somewhat of a slovenly state. Her bed wasn't made and it was really messed up. And that just isn't like her. She's army through and through. She always made her bed, and she just wasn't there. At some point, Casey Joy appeared at the scene, some hours after investigators had arrived at the apartment that he shared with Maribel, and they were still there on the premises. Lucy tried confronting him while he was speaking to police officers, demanding to know if he knew where Maribel was. He was explaining to officers that he's Maribel's roommate and he had called police earlier in the day to file a missing persons report and he was extremely concerned because this was totally out of character for her just to go off the grid like this. He also explained that it was unusual for her to not come home or to be out of touch like this, that it was normal for both of them to touch base with one another to let each other know if and when they will be home or if they're planning to be out overnight so they can lock up and go to bed. So because the last person believed to have seen Maribel was Casey, they asked him to come down to the police station to answer more questions there, which he readily agreed to go. 
He explained that they had been roommates for more than a year and that they had become very well acquainted, that they had become very good friends, and for her to go missing without communication was not typical. To investigators, their initial impression of Casey was one of cooperativeness. He expressed his worries that something must be wrong in order for her to not come home for this amount of time without letting him know, and he reiterated, unless she had plans to be on a vacation or something like that, she was never gone overnight, much less this amount of time, without at least contacting someone. Casey knew that Maribel was dating, and he suggested to investigators that the only thing he can think of is that she had gone out, possibly on a date, and didn't come back. So that is the direction the initial investigation was about to go. The following day, on Saturday, May 4th, Lucy decided to use the power of social media to begin spreading the word about Maribel's disappearance, doing everything that she could to get her sister's name and face out there to as many people as possible. She included a photo of Maribel and implored anyone who comes across this page, if you know anything, if you have any information about where Maribel might be, please get in touch with her through Facebook. The family began sharing and posting on their personal pages, wanting to also spread the word to as many people as possible as quickly as possible. And Lucy, she is already feeling it deep down to her core that this is not going to end well. She thought the worst from the moment she realized Maribel was missing and had little to no hope that there was going to be a miracle happy ending. She just felt it. The detective initially assigned to the case, Joey Ramirez, with the City of Orange Police Department, also had a bad feeling about this from the get-go. There often is hope that maybe something impromptu happened. Maybe Maribel got caught up with some friends or someone she was seeing. Maybe her phone died or she misplaced it and had been unable to get in touch. But from what Maribel's family and friends had been telling Detective Ramirez, she wouldn't have allowed them to worry like this. She would have been there for her softball game. She would have especially been there for Giselle. There's no way she'd ignore her niece's calls and texts like this. Not a chance. So investigators very soon ascertained that it didn't look like if Maribel left on her own volition that it was going to be for very long. Her car was still parked at the apartment. She did take her phone and her keys and her ID, but she didn't take a handbag. And she didn't take anything for overnight either, like her toothbrush. That was still in her bathroom. So once word started going around via social media that Maribel was missing, people started coming forward who knew her in some capacity. All of her family, her classmates and friends from Cal State Fullerton, and her roommate KC, they all banded together wanting to do what they could to help in the search. Flyers were printed both in Spanish and in English, and they started talking to the media. Giselle, who was 14 years old at the time that Maribel went missing, also joined in. She passed out flyers, and unlike her mom, Lucy, she was pretty convinced that they were going to find her Tia. 
but she was really the only one who held on to that innocent optimism. Investigators could see that there was no activity on Mary Bell's phone. Her bank accounts had not been accessed, and nobody who knew her had heard anything from her. So they're thinking this isn't going to end well based on their experience. But they did their part as far as making contact with all the local law enforcement agencies, not only in Orange County, but in neighboring counties as well, such as Los Angeles, Riverside, San Diego, and beyond. The ending might not be what they had hoped for, but they needed to get this resolved quickly because they really needed to nail down a place to begin their investigation from. They needed to know Maribel's last known whereabouts. What was the last known place Maribel had been seen? Who were the last known people she had spoken to? Who was the last person to have seen her? Is there any surveillance video that exists that can help track Maribel's final movements? Once they were able to determine that, then they would have a definitive starting point and can work their way out from there. There was still the hope that Maribel was just held up somewhere for some reason. So investigators, having the knowledge that Maribel had also been scheduled to speak at an upcoming event, knowing it was a thing that was very important to her, just like the softball game, but this even more so. So they waited for that event to come and go. And Maribel still didn't show. Then they knew. And the urgency escalated. And the hopes diminished. Law enforcement had Maribel's information forwarded to all the agencies. So if she popped up in any hospital, any jail, if she had any kind of contact with any type of law enforcement in California, they were going to be immediately notified. The local media also began reporting on Maribel's disappearance, helping to get her face and her name out so the public was aware. If anyone anywhere happened to see anything, they would hopefully reach out. But no tips, no leads, nothing came of it. Police canvassed all of the local department stores, gas stations, convenience stores, scouring hours of surveillance footage, looking for any camera anywhere that may have captured images of Maribel anywhere in the city of Orange or the surrounding communities. And for all that looking, they managed to find a singular surveillance video image of Maribel. It was taken by the camera outside the offices of the apartment building where she and Casey resided. This video of her was taken at 8.18 p.m. on Thursday, May 2nd. Maribel is seen walking up to the door of the offices, which are closed and locked at this hour. And what she does is slip an envelope into the mail slot. This was her paying her rent for the month of May. After that video, no other images of Maribel were ever found. Remember, Casey began texting Lucy and calling the local police department the following morning around 10.30, so a little more than 14 hours later. Whatever happened to Maribel happened within that 14-hour window. So the next thing police decided that they needed to do was go down the list 
of everyone who had anything to do with Maribel, anyone involved in her life at the time that she went missing, and from what we have gone over already with her large family, her somewhat complicated love life, the online dating, Cal State Fullerton, her student veterans association group, her softball team. I mean, dreamers, this girl was very, very active socially and in the community. So lots of people to sort through for sure. And this included an ex-boyfriend, someone who she was currently dating, and not to mention the person she had just met on Plenty of Fish. As she had plans to meet with that very week, on May 5th, Cinco de Mayo. One of the first persons investigators wanted to talk to happened to be the last person Maribel had spoken to, according to her phone records, Paul Lopez. I'll do my best to try and help keep all the men in the periphery of her life straight for you. He was the truck driver that she had met on Plenty of Fish that she really liked, but it seemed as though he wasn't exactly ready to settle down into a committed relationship. And it was because of that that Maribel had decided to start going fishing again online to see what she could catch next. Investigators brought him in for questioning, assuring him he wasn't under arrest, you know, which is a way of saying, but not saying, you're free to leave if you want to. But they were really suspicious of him at first in the beginning just due to the fact that he was the last person to have spoken to her on the phone. And the suspicion is maybe they hung up with the intentions of meeting in person and then something happened from there. They asked Paul about the nature of his relationship with Maribel and he explained that they did not have an exclusive relationship. It had only been casual dating. He said that he dated other people and as far as whether or not he knew of Maribel dating anyone else, he said that he had an don't ask, don't tell policy on that one. Remember, he resided in Santa Ana, which is south of Orange. So when they questioned him as to where he was the night Maribel was last seen, he said he was at home and he did not enter into the city of Orange at all that Thursday night. Investigators also knew, as they were speaking to Paul, from the information that they ascertained from Lucy, that Maribel and Paul's relationship had not worked out. So they had that in the back of their minds as they were sitting there talking to him, looking at him, trying to get a read as to what, if anything, he knew. They were also trying to figure out if Paul knew that Maribel had gone back on Plenty of Fish and had met a new guy, Alan de Herrera, that photographer from Laguna, who had previously been in the military too, which of course was something he and Maribel had in common. If Paul knew Maribel was back online actively looking for other potential men to date, could that have caused him to take issue with Maribel? They asked him where he was the evening of Thursday, May 2nd. He said he worked the shift starting at 2 p.m. and ending at midnight. And then the following day, Friday, May 3rd, he worked at 9 a.m., he also cooperated with the search of his house, and he provided his DNA for analysis. So, that brings us to Alan. Well, Alan was the one who had that date set for Cinco de Mayo, but the date never happened because Maribel vanished two days earlier. So they brought him in for questioning next. He explained that they had only ever spoken on the phone. They met online and never actually met in person. They were supposed to, though, on the 5th, 
and investigators are pressing him pretty hard. I mean, these are the usual suspects, right? Meeting virtual strangers online. This had to either be a really unfortunate coincidence for Alan, or he is just one really unlucky guy. But, you know, that was his story. The date never happened. They never met. Investigators also got in touch with Maribel's ex-fiance, Chris Carlin. He was very surprised and taken aback by the line of questioning, but right away became concerned, especially when he was told when they couldn't find Maribel, and her niece Giselle hadn't heard from her aunt either, because that to him was enough for him to believe that the outlook was grim. Nothing would keep Maribel from seeing or talking to Giselle. She'd never not answer her niece. Investigators also found out through a called-in tip about the man at the Students' Veterans Association who had been rigorously pursuing a romantic relationship with Maribel, even though she made it quite clear that she was not interested in him, even telling him that he needed to back off. Despite all that, he persisted. And the fact that he wouldn't back down really left Maribel with an uneasy feeling. His name was Raymond Bustamante. The caller described him as having bothered Maribel to the point of harassment, and it was evident that he wasn't slowing down in his pursuits of her. So investigators turned their sights on him to see what, if anything, they could glean. But when they looked at his last known address, they found out from some of his neighbors that he had relocated to Japan. And once detectives checked into that they were able to confirm that Raymond Bustamante was indeed in Japan during the time Maribel went missing. He was eliminated as a person of interest. And so was everybody else. Paul Lopez, his alibi checked out too. As I mentioned previously, he drove a truck for the Southern California Gas Company and his truck was equipped with GPS. When investigators contacted his employer, they confirmed that he was working, and his GPS confirmed it too, around the time that Maribel went missing. He wasn't even close to his apartment. Though he did get home at midnight, and he did go to bed alone, he told police that they could verify that too, because there is a surveillance camera trained right at his parking spot. And they checked into it, and yeah, he too was cleared of any involvement with Maribel's disappearance. And as for Alan de Herrera, he said he was in San Diego around the time Maribel vanished, and when investigators checked into that, his alibi was confirmed as well. He was two hours south that week on assignment for some photography work. And ex-fiance Chris Carlin, he really actually didn't raise any suspicions at all. Maribel never complained about him. He had never caused any issues in her life, and police quickly eliminated him as to having anything to do with her disappearance either. For investigators, this case was growing more and more frustrating by the minute. For starters, they don't have Maribel. They don't know where she is, nor do they have a body, nor do they have any clue where to look. They don't have a crime scene to process. They don't have any witnesses to anything. And everybody that they're interested in, Maribel's ex-fiance, Chris, the guy she had been dating for a short period of time, Paul, 
the guy she was set to meet on Cinco de Mayo, Alan, and the guy who was harassing her at the student VA, Raymond, everybody had a rock-solid alibi. So the detectives on the case decided that they needed to go back to square one and start from the very beginning. And that means another talk with the last person known to see Maribel, Casey Joy, her roommate, as he remained the only one who had not been definitively cleared yet. We will circle back to Casey Joy in a moment. I have another troubling aspect of this case that I need to tell you about first. Dreamers, what I'm going to describe for you next is one of the most haunting and chilling details I've heard in a very long time. And it is something that investigators discovered about a week after Maribel went missing. On the evening of April 21st, 2013, a 911 call was received made by Maribel Ramos. This was only 11 days before she went missing. In this phone call, Maribel is clearly afraid and she is sobbing. When the call starts, Maribel says, Hi, it's not an emergency, but I just... Is there a recording? And then the operator asks her, is there what? And Maribel asks again, is this conversation recording? The operator says, yes, every conversation is recorded. And then Maribel goes on to explain, I am just calling to let you guys know that if something happens, I did it because I was trying to defend myself. And at this point in the call, Maribel is audibly crying in the recorded call. All I'm trying to say is, I'm warning. Honestly, I will fight for my life. I swear, I will kill him. And I'll come back to this 911 call with more details about it in a little bit. I want to tell you more about Casey Joy. Maribel's roommate of 18 months, Casey Joy, He was out there. He was visible. He was speaking to the media. He was helping in the search. He was very much expressing his deep concerns as to what became of whom he called his best friend, the only family that he had, and he was desperate to see her home. And it seemed to be very much the truth, as I had discussed earlier. Maribel welcomed Casey into her tight-knit group of friends and family, and he even tutored Giselle. And everyone was certain there was nothing romantic going on between Casey and Maribel. They were just like family, and it was evident in the pictures of the two that they really truly did enjoy each other's company. So he too, along with all the other men in Maribel's life, was brought into the police station for questioning. Their impression of him was that he had a great deal of worry for Maribel, They could see the expressions on his face that her fate was weighing on him. He was basically told that there are a bunch of people, her friends and family, who cared about her, who are very worried about her, and Casey continued to insist she is his friend and he cares too. But beyond that, he had no information to offer as to what became of her. He was asked when the last time he saw her was, and he said it was approximately 9 p.m. the evening of May 2nd. 
So that would be about 42 minutes after that video of Maribel walking up to the management office door and putting her rent payment into the mail slot was captured. He said they talked, and then he said he went out. But the following evening, when police arrived at their apartment after all of Maribel's friends and teammates began calling 911, he wasn't home. Where was he when everyone got there looking for her? You see, dreamers, they tried to get into the apartment, but they didn't have a key, so police ended up forcing their way in. Well, according to KC, he had become so concerned about Maribel that he was out trying to find out information on his own. And how exactly was he going about that? Well, he was actually close by. He was parked on the street nearby in a spot where he could see his front door from his vantage point. And he explained he was sitting there to see who, if anyone, would come by if he could see anyone suspicious. Because, he explained, whenever he watches crime movies or detective movies, the suspect always comes back to the crime scene. That was Casey's logic. This was like a movie and he was playing detective. He wanted to see who was going to come knock on his door, so he went and just parked the car nearby, and he had a notebook and a pair of binoculars, and he waited. But dreamers, you might be asking, well, if he was sitting there in his car watching his own front door, then he must have seen when police arrived and were struggling for some hours trying to gain entry into the home. Yeah, he was actually watching. But he didn't get out of his car to help the investigation along by offering to unlock the door or letting anyone in? No, he didn't. And what's more, as Casey is sitting there explaining how he's playing amateur detective with his binoculars, investigators are looking him up and down and it became pretty obvious that Casey had scratches on both his arms, as well as scratches that are oriented in a downward motion starting at the top of his forehead near the hairline all the way down to his bra line. So they asked him, what's up with all these scratches? Well, he said, we go to the park all the time. They go near the pond and they pick up fishing lines. You go there all the time, There are fishing lines, and you can hear in the interview that detectives questioning him are dubious. Those are from fishing lines? Casey chuckled and said, no, no, let me explain. He said he was walking the dogs when he noticed some fishing line in some shrubs, and it looked like it could have been a serious hazard for the ducks that hang around the pond, so he wanted to try to get rid of it so the wildlife didn't get tangled up in this fishing line, And in doing so, he got a bunch of scratches from the thorns on the bush, and in all the hoopla, he fell, further getting scratched up by the thorns in those bushes. And I guess by now, and it goes without saying, that most seasoned detectives are going to be able to tell the difference between scratches caused by a bush, or perhaps a fall off a bike or whatever. They're going to look a lot different than scratches one might get from a fight. And admittedly, they would have conceded that some of the scratches look like Casey may have got them from someplace else. 
But there was a specific set of scratches up near Casey's bicep that had obviously been made by someone using their hand to scratch at him. This wasn't from a bush or anything else. And what that means to detectives is that Casey appeared to have recently been in a fight with someone. Investigators asked Casey, did you and Maribel have a dispute or a fight? And if so, when? And he willingly admitted that they had an argument that past Thursday, the very last evening that Maribel was ever seen or heard from. Okay, so that's going to raise some eyebrows, right? But KC is being forthcoming. But at the same time, if he had this fight with Maribel, then he probably knows that there are people that she could have turned around and called and texted to tell them about it. So he probably felt like it was in his best interest to bring it up. So detectives asked him, what was the fight about? What occurred? Casey started off by saying that he was supposed to move out. The truth was, Maribel demanded that he move out. Casey suddenly lost his job and was living on unemployment benefits, and by the beginning of May, he had no money for his portion of the rent. Was he downplaying the magnitude of the disagreement? Yeah, from the interview, it kind of sounded like it. But with this little bit of information that there had been a dispute between Maribel and KC and it was over money, it had investigators wondering and worrying because this was a pretty big red flag in their book. And to add to the detective's suspicions, they were also soon made aware of that 911 call that we discussed a few minutes ago. Now, I read you some of the transcript of what Maribel said to the operator in the call. What she was essentially doing was putting it on the record that she was, in fact, in fear for her life. She had reason to believe that her life was in some kind of danger, and her reasons for calling 911 was to put the fact that she was possibly going to be in a position where she was going to be made to utilize deadly force in defending herself. She was preemptively letting somebody know which is why she wanted it to be confirmed that her call was being recorded. So what does this tell us, dreamers? Well, it can be a number of things. It gives us somewhat of an insight into Maribel's state of mind at the time that she made the call. When she first began her call, she had herself together. But as she went on, describing that if she had to, she would probably kill somebody to defend herself, she started crying. Nobody knew Maribel to have ever been one to have ever shown any fear. She was their soldier. She was tough. So if and when the time came for her family to have been made aware of this call and for them to hear her cries, it could have been nothing short of heartbreaking. Just absolutely heartbreaking. I even wonder if Maribel ever showed her family, friends, and loved ones her vulnerable side like she did in that call because it really didn't sound like it because she was their rock she was everything in that family but something very very serious was breaking her down what was it all those years of war and combat 
but it was something right here in her own life, so close to her, that is driving her to tears. This had to be bad. And while making that phone call to 911, Maribel did provide the name of the person who she feared. She said, His full name is Quang Chao Joy, her own roommate. And as detectives sat in that interview room with Casey, they had already known about this call. And they knew police had been dispatched to their apartment prompted by that call. So they questioned him about it, kind of in a roundabout way, asking, Now weren't the police out to your house recently because you guys had an argument? Casey began to explain that they had been drinking a lot that evening, and she started hitting him, telling him that she didn't like him, that she wasn't attracted to him. But in his mind, she was having too much to drink, and she misinterpreted the situation, and he was trying to calm her down and trying to assure Maribel that they were having a really great time that evening. What's your problem? Well, dreamers, there was a problem. And it was a problem Maribel had shared with at least some of her family, possibly some of her friends. That Casey had expressed a desire to go beyond their roommate-slash-friendship relationship and pursue a romantic one. And Casey himself even spoke directly to Maribel's sister Lucy about his feelings. You see, he phoned Lucy to talk to her. How long before she disappeared that this phone call was made isn't clear. But he called and explained to Lucy that he was falling in love with Maribel. I thought it was kind of weird for him to call Lucy to talk about it. But then again, they seemed to have welcomed him into their family with open arms. So perhaps he felt comfortable enough to confide in Lucy about it. And maybe he was just putting the feelers out there to see what her reaction might be. If she would say, oh, you know, yeah, Maribel's totally into you. You should just go for it. Ask her out, whatever, whatever. Or she might say the opposite. Oh, no, she doesn't think of you in that way. You're kind of like an uncle to her. You should try to figure out a way to get past those feelings because she's not going to be interested. And Lucy did. She was honest with him because she already knew her sister and she knew Casey was not somebody Maribel would date. She also knew it was going to be weird and awkward from that point forward, but she tried to be nice about it, telling him, you know, you're a really good guy, there's somebody out there for you, but she was pretty sure Maribel wasn't the one. So on top of the disputes over money, this information just adds another complicated layer to the relationship between Maribel and KC. So now police knew when speaking to KC that the situation had been escalating from that point forward. From the time Maribel made it clear that she wanted to have nothing to do with him romantically to the time that she demanded that he move out of the home due to failure to pay rent, it wasn't a jump for detectives to see where this was headed. Because now, Maribel is missing. Despite the fact that Casey is seemingly being pretty cooperative, I mean, he didn't invoke his rights to an attorney. He willingly turned over anything police wanted to collect from inside the apartment. 
and he seemed willing to talk and was open and candid. It didn't shake the feeling that investigators had in speaking to him, that there was much more going on with Casey Joy than he was letting on. But for now, he would be free to go once his interview was over. Okay, so what do we have so far here with Maribel's 53-year-old roommate? We know that he was the last person to see Maribel before she went missing. We know that sometime leading up to her disappearance, he made it clear, at least to Lucy, and from the sounds of what she told investigators, Maribel was aware that Casey's feelings towards her was crossing the boundaries of friendship, which made her feel, at the very least, uncomfortable. She was known to have told him he was too old for her, and it is believed that following being told that, that Casey had some form of cosmetic procedures done, but to what extent, I'm not sure, perhaps to smooth out his skin, his wrinkle lines, stuff like that. And all of this was done ostensibly to try to make himself more appealing to Maribel, and he had been known to be open about it, that he underwent all this work for her. And it was known that Casey spent about $12,000 on this cosmetic work. But it didn't pay off. Maribel still wasn't interested in him. The other circumstances include the fact that Casey was the first one who contacted police to report Maribel had not come home the evening before. Often that action is thought of as an attempt to create an alibi for oneself. Investigators also know that 11 days before Maribel vanished, she had some sort of fight or altercation with KC, which prompted her to call 911 to get it on the record that she was in fear for her life and that if something happens and if someone in her life winds up dead, it's because she had a reason for concern, so much so that in advance she wanted to tell someone on a recorded message that if her hand was forced, she would not hesitate to kill somebody. And she followed that up with naming Casey Joy as the person she felt posed a danger to her. Investigators also have the information received from Maribel's various family members and friends who have said Casey developed a crush on Maribel and his feelings went unrequited. And they had the scratches on Casey's face and arms that appeared to have been made by someone's hands not consistent with getting in a tussle with a thorny bush. And they have Casey's own admission that he, in fact, hindered the investigation by sitting in his car across the street from the apartment that he shared with Maribel and watched as police struggled to gain entry into their home, finally having to force their way in. The circumstantial evidence is adding up, but it still wasn't quite enough to reach beyond a reasonable doubt. They needed Maribel's body. How in the world are they going to figure out where to start looking for that? Well, they're going to put KC under 24-hour surveillance, at least for a little while. So for several days, undercover officers followed KC as he went over to the local library to use the computers because he did not have one of his own, and the computer he used was Maribel's and it had been confiscated by police and his cell phone had been confiscated too. Now I want to stop here for just a second because even though this is much too late and much too after the fact, 
don't you guys see a bunch of warning signs that you wish would have been picked up on way back when Maribel first started looking for a roommate? First off, she put her post on Craigslist. Nothing against Craigslist. Everything I've ever found on the site was on the up and up and always worked well for me. But I think Casey just should have been looked into more. I think she needed to ask more questions and get more explanations for things. Because all she knew was he was from out of state. He had no local family or friends. He obviously had no place to stay and no resources really to seek out a place of his own. She couldn't contact anybody to get references. And now we're learning he doesn't even have a computer. And he's supposedly a chemical engineer. So he must be highly educated. And this is 2012 and he's only 53 years old working in that field and has no computer. And then if he had said he had no family and friends and then there's nobody to call to ask questions or check up on him or get some references. I mean, I know we're looking at this in hindsight, but just for future reference, you don't need to be a math genius to see when things don't add up. And it's a good thing too because I am terrible at math. Anyway, for several days, undercover detectives followed Casey around as he went to the library to use the public computers. And they were going to try to get a good view of what he's looking up by lingering around in the background, trying to peer over his shoulder, but they just can't get close enough without drawing attention to themselves to see what websites he's visiting. Though they were able to see him make one Google search where he typed in, can a cell phone be tracked once it's turned off? And that's pretty suspect. But they're going to need to get more than that. More than just glances and snapshots of what Casey was doing. They needed to watch every move that he was making on that computer. So what they did do was something pretty techy. So I'll try to dumb it down as much as possible. Not for you, but for me. Because I know my dreamers are a bunch of smarty pants. So the detectives are going to set up a little post across the street in an office building near the library. And what they're going to be able to do is utilize the internet connection at the same time that Casey logs into the computer that he's choosing at the library, and they're going to be able to gain access to what he's doing while he's doing it. And they have specialized software programs that basically mirrors every single one of Casey's keystrokes and mouse clicks in real time. And for this, they would also need a search warrant, which they obtained. So, as Casey types, investigators are watching. On Google, he typed in, how long does it take for a human body to decay? And that was it. That was the moment that investigators were certain that Casey Joy was good for this murder. But the reality was they still had nothing to prove a crime had been committed. Casey's next computer search took him to Maribel's missing Facebook page. And as he's scrolling around, there is a post about an awareness walk that is planned for Saturday, May 18th, a little more than two weeks after Maribel went missing. And it's happening at a place called Peter's Canyon, which is located in the city of Orange, but parts of it expand into the neighboring city of Tustin. 
It's a place that's popular with hikers, cyclists, and horseback riders. So next, Casey looked up the address of Peters Canyon, and then he takes that information and enters it into the Google search bar on Maps. And then, once the canyon comes up on Maps, Casey suddenly began to zoom in on an isolated area about 8 miles or 13 kilometers away from the location of the awareness walk called Mojeska Canyon. And he's not just zooming in on the general area. Casey went to the satellite view and zoomed in on a tree. And investigators are watching him make the zoom in on maps and they're all thinking the same thing. Damn, he just showed us where Maribel's body is located. That spot where Casey was looking, there was nothing that anyone had ever alluded to in their talks with Casey. That location had never been brought up in any aspect of the investigation. It had not been discussed by police or by the media. There is no reason this location should have stood out to Casey independent of his own internet search. The first time this place, this tree was ever introduced into the equation was the moment Casey zoomed in on it on Google Maps. Casey Joy brought this spot into this case. Why is he looking at the distance between Peters Canyon and this other random location? Well, because the awareness walk isn't just a walk. It's a search. And Casey was curious. How close is this search going to be to the place where investigators now suspected Maribel's body would be located? Police, search teams, dogs, the whole cavalry basically descended upon the location of that tree. All of this before Casey Joy even left his seat at the library that day. It's so cliche, right? The whole returning to the scene of the crime thing? Just now, the killer doesn't actually have to physically go there. He or she can just go to Google, click and zoom, and voila! Back at the scene from behind the anonymity of a keyboard. So investigators made their way out to that tree. None of the hiking or cycling paths even go out there, so it's super remote. So, getting directions over the radio from their colleagues who've got the map's location pulled up in front of them, searchers try their best to be guided exactly to the location Casey was looking at. He had first zoomed in on a nearby intersection, and then his search scrolled towards that tree. So that's what they're working off of. And they did manage to locate that tree a little further off towards some barbed wire fences. And it wasn't long before they were able to detect the odor of decomposition. As they scanned the area, they soon realized that not too much further from where they stood, it was clear that there was a disturbed patch of ground that looked like a grave. They really didn't need any verification. They knew that they'd found her. Investigators tailing Casey at the library confronted him there and asked him if he could come back down to the station for more questioning. 
What Casey did not know was this would be the last time. Not because when they were done that he was going to be free to go. I mean, he even asked if he could get a ride back to the library when they were finished. They weren't going to tell them that they found Maribel. No, that would for sure cause him to shut down and lawyer up. They wanted one last shot to get the truth from him. And they told him, We think you know. Deep down in your heart, you know. But Casey stuck to his story, continuing to insist that he had no information about Maribel's whereabouts or what happened to her. And as her best friend, he is just as concerned as everyone else. So they told him he was free to go, but he really wasn't. Once he stepped outside the interview room, Casey Joy was taken into custody and he was charged with Maribel's murder. And while he was being booked, his possessions were taken into custody. And among the things he had on him were Maribel's military identification and her army dog tags. This guy actually had the audacity to steal her military dog tags and wear them. Doesn't that just send chills down your spine? One year after Maribel's death, Casey Joy went on trial for her murder. And this is how the state laid out its case. And I'm going to try to just get through it pretty quickly. They hit hard first with that damning 911 call made by Maribel on the evening of April 21st, 2013, getting it on the record that she was in fear of the worst from Casey, a man who had fallen in love with Maribel, but the feeling was far from mutual. That night, According to the full recording of her call, he had made advances towards her, and when she rejected him, she felt as though he was going to hurt her or do harm to her, and she was scared for her life. Casey had told her that he held a black belt in martial arts, and that was enough to instill enough fear in her for her to call 911 that she was prepared to use deadly force if she had to defend her life. When a police officer arrived at the apartment, the situation appeared to be diffused when Casey assured the officer that he intended to move out by the end of April, which was nine days away. But then, about 10 days later, on May 2nd, Maribel texted Paul Lopez, the guy that she had been casually seeing, and told him that Casey was still fighting with her because he still hadn't paid the rent for April. So Paul decided to call her instead of texting, and when he did so, he could clearly hear Casey in the background continuing to argue with Maribel, and he described her sounding afraid. Maribel then put the phone on speaker so Paul could listen, and he heard Maribel tell Casey that she was going to kick him out the next day, but whatever Casey's response was on the other end, Paul could not discern because it was too garbled for him to make out what Casey was saying because it was in the background. Maribel got back on the phone with Paul and she told him that she would see him the next evening for their Friday night softball game. And at that point, they hung up. Paul did try to message Maribel a number of times that night, but he never heard back from her. And the following day, he tried to call her several times and she still never got back. So that evening of the third, when Maribel failed to show up for the softball game, Paul along with the others on the team, went over to her house, but their knocks went unanswered. 
but they could see that her bedroom light was left on. Thinking that she might be injured or incapacitated in her room, they began calling police, and for the next several hours, they tried to get their hands on a key to her apartment so they could get in, but eventually, police decided to force their way in. And it was later on that they found out Casey was sitting right there across the street watching the whole thing. From the time the police arrived at the apartment that he shared with Maribel, all the time they spent trying to get a key to get in, to the time that they finally got in. And what he ended up doing was calling a police dispatcher and explaining that he didn't want to go to his apartment while police were on the premises. An officer finally approached Casey as he sat in his car and asked him, why didn't he come over to help? And he said he thought something was seriously wrong. Casey told one of Maribel's cousins that he saw her leave the apartment with a guy. But when they pressed him for more details, he ignored them. Inside the apartment, there were no obvious signs of a fight or a struggle, but they did find bloodstains located on the sleeves of a pair of pajamas that belonged to Maribel that someone had neatly folded and tucked away in Maribel's closet. Maribel's vehicle was located in its usual parking spot, but missing were her car keys, her identification, a coin purse, and her cell phone. Casey willingly came to the police station that same evening to be interviewed. And it was during that initial interview that Casey revealed that he was watching their apartment from across the street using a pair of binoculars while he was hiding in the back seat. He watched as police arrived. It was also during this interview that detectives made note of the various scratches on Casey's arms and face. And it was clear that the large scratch on his face that went from his hairline to his brow was very recent. According to court documents, Casey also had several scratches and a puncture wound on his left arm. He had scratches on the inside of his right wrist, a scratch on the left side of his neck, and four parallel scratches on his right tricep. And remember, I went over how he explained how he got those scratches trying to pull fishing lines out of a bush. But he also said that the scratch near his eyes was caused by the $12,000 in cosmetic surgery that he had done to try to undo some of his 53 years, and he said that it was Maribel's idea that he get the work done. Which sounds kind of stupid to me, because why the hell would she care what Casey does, right? And at the time, Casey was 17 years older than Maribel. Also, Casey appeared surprised when investigators pointed out some of the scratches to him, particularly the one on his forehead. He had been asked if he had scratches on his legs, and he said that he didn't, but they again pointed out that scratches were visible and he brushed them off saying that it must have happened when he fell. So clearly Casey didn't look in any mirror any time between May 2nd and May 3rd. So yeah, it's pretty easy to know that you have visible scratches and how do I know this? Well, I'm not going to pin all of this on Fred, but you know sometimes when your animals jump on you or they dig their claws in, there's been some times when the dogs have tried climbing up on my shoulder. I think that they would like to be perched on top of my head if they could. And in doing so, they step on my shoulder and on my chest, on my neck. And then I won't really look in the mirror till much later, like when I go to shower or something. And then I see all these scratches on my skin. And I would have never otherwise known that they were there. So KC went into that interview not knowing that he was all scratched up. 
Casey told investigators that he was the one who purchased all of the groceries for the house, that he helped pay other expenses, but at the time, his only source of income was that he was collecting unemployment. So a guy on unemployment, a limited income, and no job goes and gets $12,000 in cosmetic surgery, and he wants us to believe he did so because Maribel suggested it? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, if she knew he was on unemployment, which she likely did because they were close friends at one point, would she really tell him to do something like that when he's obviously got limited financial resources and she depends on him to pay part of the rent? Yeah, not buying it. Also in his interview, Casey admitted that he did have a romantic interest in Maribel and that she rejected him. He also indicated that he had promised to purchase Maribel a new car because he was expecting a settlement from a former employer. But to me, that sounds like an attempt to try and smooth things over with her. And he also made the claim that they had made each other mutual beneficiaries in their last will and testaments. And that doesn't make sense to me either because Maribel had lots of family and her niece, who she loved very much as if she was her own child. So there's no way that I'm going to believe that Maribel made KC her beneficiary. He also admitted that he and Maribel had an argument on the night of May 2nd, and the argument stemmed from his promise to move out by April 30th. He had told that to the responding officers prompted by Maribel's 911 call, and Maribel expected him to be gone. And his story for the rest of the night was this. They argued that he was aware that Maribel had put their fight on speakerphone for Paul Lopez to listen in on, but following that, Maribel went into her room. The last time Casey saw her, she was wearing gray polka-dotted pajamas, and those were the ones that I mentioned earlier that had blood on them and were folded and placed back into her closet. At that point, Casey said he went out, and when he came back about an hour later... Maribel was gone and he left again because he said he was frustrated and when he returned again he found Maribel's bedroom light on and her door was open and her small coin purse keys and cell phone were gone from there Casey said Maribel actively dated lots of men and in his words always had dates lined up but he did call police the following morning around 10 30 to report Maribel missing from that point, Casey remained a suspect, but they really couldn't do anything until they found Maribel's body. Meanwhile, Casey's external hard drive had been confiscated, and at some point following his interview, he asked for it back. They questioned him and were like, how do you use it without a computer? And he said he used the computers at the library, and that he was doing what he could to help in the search for Maribel, and that's when they decided to surveil him and his library activities. On May 16th, 2013, that is when Casey made all those incriminating Google searches while detectives were watching him remotely in real time from across the street with that software. It was there when they saw him type, how long does it take a human body to decay, into the search bar, and he visited Maribel's missing Facebook page. From there, he cleared his browser history, and then they watched him do that map search going from the location of the awareness walk into Peter's Canyon, and then he switched over to the satellite view, 
where he could specifically look at landmarks nearby, and that's when he zoomed in on that tree, which, according to the court documents, was near the intersection of Santiago Canyon Road and Jackson Ranch Road, not too far from the walk. Casey then cleared his search history again. Detectives went to that area and were able to find Maribel's body in less than an hour. She was in that shallow grave. The upper portion of her body was still covered with rocks and debris, but some of her hair had been pulled out. Her legs were sticking out of the ground, but her feet were missing, and it would later be determined that this damage to her body was caused by animal activity. Maribel's cause of death could not be determined. Casey Joy was arrested the next day, and that's when they found him with her dog tags and her military ID. For their part, the defense was able to point to the lack of evidence that actually linked Casey to Maribel's disappearance and subsequent murder. What they had presented was a highly circumstantial case, they said. They had no DNA evidence to indicate that Casey had done anything to Maribel. They had no incriminating fingerprints. There was nothing on the cell phone. And not to mention any solid forensic evidence linking Casey to Maribel's murder or to the location where Maribel was ultimately discovered. And they didn't even know how she was killed. If there was a weapon, maybe Maribel had a weapon. Maybe this was an accident. What exactly are we looking at here? But what they did have was everything leading up to Maribel's murder, right up to those computer searches conducted by Casey himself, which led investigators straight to the body. All of that circumstantial stuff was enough for the jury to convict Casey Joy of second-degree murder. After the verdict, Casey did an interview, and he was asked if he was dangerous, and he said, me? I am the perfect, most honest guy there is, the most trustworthy. I am a gentleman. He denied having any romantic feelings for her, insisting their relationship was purely platonic. But you know, to me, it was platonic, yes, but it wasn't by his choice. It was because of Maribel, the woman who had won the affections of several other men, and all of them, it is believed, Casey Joy was insanely jealous of. She rebuffed Casey's advances. He denied ever telling Lucy he was in love with her sister. And how is it he explained away the incriminating computer searches that led investigators exactly to her body? He said it wasn't him. It was the investigators messing with the computer who had remote access to what he was doing that conducted that search. In other words, the police department had orchestrated some sort of frame-up in their attempts to pin Maribel's murder on him. And he's convinced if he had access to the types of resources such as O.J. Simpson, if he had been able to assemble a team of top attorneys and investigators, he would have never been convicted. And Casey was challenged on that contention. The issue at hand isn't the fact that he's not guilty, but rather he didn't have any money. And Casey said, money talks. What investigators theorized happened was that the night Maribel walked out to the management office to pay the rent, a fight had been going on between Casey and Maribel over his inability to pay, 
along with his promise to move out and his overstaying the last day of April. When she got back from paying the rent, the fight continued, and at some point she got her friend, kind of boyfriend Paul, on the phone to listen to the argument. The yelling between the two continued until she finally retreated to her room, slamming her door on KC. Now remember, this is the prosecution's theory. They think at some point, Maribel fell asleep. Casey snuck into her room and smothered her with a pillow. Why do they think this? Well, I believe it's for two reasons. When they examined Maribel during the autopsy, there was no indication that she had any injuries consistent with being strangled, such as her hyoid bone being broken or anything like that. She had no other injuries, and there was no evidence of anything really violent that took place in her bedroom. Her bed was messy, and she did have a bit of blood on the sleeves of her pajamas, though I'm not clear if it was her blood or Casey's. But they did have those scratches on his arms and on his biceps, and it's believed that she inflicted those scratches as he smothered her. Then he drove her down to that remote location in Peters Canyon, where he buried her under some rocks and debris. And he came home, and the following morning, he put a plan into motion to cover up what he had done. First, by messaging Lucy that her sister had never come home, and then by making that non-emergency call to report her missing. 24 days after Maribel was so violently ripped from this world by a once-trusted friend, more than 10,000 students from California State University at Fullerton graduated, and one of them graduated posthumously. Daughter, sister, aunt, niece, cousin, friend, Mexican-American, Iraqi war veteran, and aspiring police officer, Maribel Ramos. The university reserved one empty seat with a pink balloon attached to it in the row set aside for Maribel's family because pink was her favorite color. In her place, in her honor, in her memory, her niece Giselle, who Maribel loved so much, was seated next to her aunt's empty chair and walked for her at commencement and received her degree in criminal justice for her. The mark that Maribel Ramos left on the lives of those she touched is enduring, and it's forever. For as long as anyone who knew her, until the moment she took her last breath, Maribel never stopped giving her all to attain her dreams. And aside from the loss of someone who sacrificed so much, one of the greatest tragedies is the loss of what could have been. Her family, her friends, they choose not to look at how Maribel died, but rather how she lived by reflecting upon her life and her legacy with loving memories and tremendous pride. And that brings this 104th episode of California Dreaming to a close. If you would like to discuss this case in more detail or any others that we have covered, please feel free to request and join the California Dreaming official Facebook discussion page. 
There we have cultivated an amazing community of listeners and true crime fans who share their thoughts and opinions on all of the cases that we cover, as well as current true crime stories, other news, TV shows that we enjoy, documentaries that we've watched, books that we've read. Whatever you find that you would like to share, please come and join us. You can also follow the show on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. And this week, I would like to wish a happy birthday to Amanda W. on August 28th, Courtney M. on the 29th, and John P. on the 30th. California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with the mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. So please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again so much for listening. I am your host, Roseanne. And until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>